This podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available, the Fuller Leadership Scholarship for students who begin the Certificate of Christian Studies in spring of 2019 or summer of 2019. This new scholarship will cover up to 100% of certificate's tuition cost for select students and is designated for ministry and marketplace leaders looking for new ways to impact their congregation, community, and calling. Take courses in the areas like missional churches and leadership, Christian ethics, dynamics of power and gender in Christian leadership. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash leadership scholarship. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. Before we get to our conversation, we need to tell you about this week's presenting sponsor, the Migration and Border Crossing Conference, February 7th through the 9th in Atlanta. Migration and Border Crossing will bring together theologians, legal scholars, artists, and faith community leaders to explore the causes, process, and effects of global migration. Keynote addresses by former poet laureate Juan Felipe Herrera and the dean of the Vanderbilt Divinity School, Emily Towns. Worship will be led by leading scholars in a variety of fields. Scholarships for seminary students of all faith traditions are available. Migration and Border Crossing is presented by the Emory University Center of Study of Law and Religion and Columbia Theological Seminary. For more information, visit ctsnet.edu backslash migration dash and dash border dash crossings. Well, our guest for this week's podcast deserves way more of a spectacular introduction than I could ever put into words. Tony Campolo is a professor of sociology at Eastern University, a prolific speaker and writer, as well as the founder of EAPE, Red Letter Christians and the Campolo Center. Tony, thank you for taking time to join the conversation. I consider it a privilege. Thank you for this opportunity. Now, when I was in college, I picked up a copy of your book, Let Me Tell You a Story. And then I heard you speak, and I heard you share a story about throwing a birthday party for for a prostitute. And I remember that night uh, to this day because it was the first time that uh, I believe that I was truly introduced to the Jesus presented in the Gospels. Instead of the bleached white robes, ask Jesus into your heart kind of Jesus that I was reared to believe. So, so. I wouldn't call that you're inviting people into a new way of following Jesus, but you're, you, you've invited people to awaken into a new understanding of what Jesus is inviting us into. How, how did that all get started for you? It comes out of reading the story of Jesus in the Bible, um, coming to grips with the fact that, uh, that Jesus as being defined by the American culture is very different than the Jesus revealed in scripture. Um, I am a sociologist by trade. You in, uh, suggested and noted that I uh, have been a member of the faculty at Eastern University, a, an American Baptist school here in Pennsylvania for many, many years. And as a sociologist, uh, you easily uh, deconstruct Jesus as he is presented in the American religious cultural system. And as you deconstruct him from the cultural Jesus, 
you come to grips with the fact that there is a mocking discrepancy between that Jesus and the Jesus revealed in the New Testament, the Jesus revealed in Scripture. And uh, the thing that impressed me was that the Jesus that I came to know through Scripture was really radical, as opposed to the uh, middle class and somewhat anemic Jesus that came across in the culture. I, uh, I found there was a quality about Jesus that uh, concerned me because the church seemed to be missing the point. Uh, here was a Jesus that said, uh, if you want to be my disciple, sell what you have, give to the poor, take up the cross and follow me. What Jesus had to say about poor people radicalized my life. Uh, he changed me completely. And the more I meditated on scripture and in prayer, I felt his presence in my life uh, guiding me in the reading of scripture, the more I became aware that uh, Jesus in a social cultural sense was a very dangerous man and uh, dangerous in the fact that if we take his words seriously, our, our lifestyles would have to change. Our society would have to be challenged. Our American way of life would have to be called into question. And America itself would have to be called into question. So uh, it was the uh, sociological deconstruction of Jesus in its cultural form that drove me back to scripture and had me thinking, what does this Jesus in scripture really say to me? You come from a generation that, that predates sound bites and hot takes for, for clicks and downloads and books to be bought. So in my opinion, at, at the heart of all of these new ways of seeing Jesus and his invitation um, that you presented are in fact the inner workings of your convictions. So I wonder if you'd be willing to take us into your continued spiritual formation that allows you to explore new possibilities. The uh, way of the way of spiritual development for me has been uh, very, very much a part of my own personal experiences. Uh, when I was about 28, 29 years of age, I started teaching at Eastern, got caught up with some uh, Hispanic young people who had me uh, very rapidly involved in ministry in the Dominican Republic. Uh, I became enthralled with the zeal of Christians in the Dominican Republic and soon joined with a group of them uh, to start a new university, which uh, became the National Evangelical University of the Dominican Republic, now one of the most highly accredited schools in Latin America. Uh, it now has about 1,500 students. I think that translates to about 2,000 uh, full-time equivalency, but uh, a lot of students and uh, good, good facilities and a dynamic outreach. It has a, a seminary, it has a school for Christian education and youth ministry, uh, but most of all, it's into the practical things of life, uh, namely medical science, becoming doctors, lawyers, teachers. 
So uh, they they invited me into their lives, these Dominican Christians. And it was the first time I was exposed to radical poverty. And uh, being among the poor had an effect on me. Uh, not so much a pity, something else. I began to sense Christ's presence among the poor. I began to go to churches occupied by by poor people, and there was a spirit of 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 Christ. There was a dynamism. There was a spiritual electricity that ran through these services, and I began to feel Jesus in a whole new way. I began to get my students involved. Uh, I would get them. Uh, to go down to the Dominican Republic and then to Haiti, which is at the other end of the island of, of Hispaniola. And uh, they were changed. As a matter of fact, when I look back on my life, uh, I would say my, my legacy is nothing other than this. My students, many of them have done and are continuing to do outstanding work for Jesus in the kingdom. I think of uh, Shane Claiborne, who has now become a, a rock star with, with Christian young people around the world, uh, having written the book, uh, The Irresistible Revolution, which is selling hundreds of thousands of copies. Uh, I think of Brian Stevenson, who has become uh, one of the leaders of uh, abolishing the death penalty and uh, his Equal Justice Initiative and his museum about uh, lynching that he developed in, in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, all of these things that Brian Stevenson, I, I think he was once one of my students. Wow, that's incredible. And I think of uh, Jonathan Wilson Hardgrove uh, up in Durham, North Carolina, uh, living in community and uh, teaching part-time at Duke Divinity School and impacting that neighborhood uh, with Jesus Christ and the kingdom. So uh, these students impacted me. I taught them, but they taught me. As a matter of fact, I, I think that they began to live out the radical lifestyle that Jesus prescribes much more than I ever would. And uh, uh, they have called me uh, to accountability on that. Uh, so they have challenged me, they have taught me, they have nurtured me, they have uh, matured me. Uh, the other thing that has impressed me is that I got to know a faculty member at Spring Arbor University. This is a free Methodist school in Michigan. And uh, uh, her name is Mary Darling. Because we were working at, at a distance from each other, we did have uh, difficulty constantly communicating, but we did and wrote a couple of books. But one of those books was called The God of Intimacy in Action. And uh, we thought of naming the book uh, St. Ignatius for Dummies, but we didn't know that that title would sell many books. So we, we came up with the title, The God of Intimacy in Action. And what it was about, it was about uh, tapping in to the rich spiritual exercises um, laid out by St. Ignatius. And uh, when I learned about other ways of praying, centering prayer, the prayer of examine, uh, Lectio Divina. Uh, these were things I never heard of before. And uh, I learned these things from Mary and got into these uh, levels of spirituality. And this was another transformative effect in my life. 
I always wanted an infilling of the Holy Spirit as I saw it in the Pentecostal movement. But that Pentecostal thing didn't work for me, even though people did the laying on of hands and praying for me. But when I began to pray in these new ways that the, uh, the tradition of St. Ignatius had established, whole new ways of praying, I began to feel, that's the big word, I began to feel Jesus in me. I began to experience the living Christ. I always believed in him. I knew him to be the way, the truth, and the life. But to feel him alive within, to sense him transforming me from within, to feel uh, the Holy Spirit exploding inside of me, uh, that made a major difference in my life. So they're the things that have molded me, my students, my experiences among the poor in developing countries, and then my uh, trek into uh, spirituality led by, of all things, a Roman Catholic, which is a hard thing for a Baptist to do, uh, you know, to get into Roman Catholic uh, spirituality. But uh, spiritual formation has become a big part of my life as of late. Well, in 2007, you founded Red Letter Christians, and you set out with a goal of taking Jesus seriously, um, namely the desire to seek to live out Jesus' radical countercultural teachings um, set forth in Scripture and embracing the lifestyle that's prescribed in the Sermon of the Mount. I wonder, when you, when you started this movement, at any point did you think to yourself, why does this seem so radical for evangelicals in America, and why have we so complicated this following of the one that we claim to love and to serve? I think that uh, uh, Baptists are people who seek to be sound theologically. And uh, if you're looking for theology, you have to go to the epistles. Uh, Jesus doesn't give us as much theology as the epistles do. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is a lifestyle. It's not a theology. Uh, if you want to believe that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast or any woman should boast, you have to go to Paul. Uh, those words are from Paul. Those words are not Jesus. And yet those words connotate the essence of what it means to be, quote unquote, saved or becoming a Christian. Saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we have emphasized a sound Orthodox theology, but in so doing, we have ignored uh, the radical teachings of Jesus. What's even more important is that there's a tendency for us to become so imbued with uh, what we call dispensationalist theology. That's a fancy term, but most Baptists got acquainted with dispensationalist theology because it's the theology that they find in the footnotes of the Schofield Reference Bible. And that theology suggests that the Sermon on the Mount and the radical teachings of Jesus do not belong to this dispensation, but the next dispensation. When Christ returns and establishes kingdom on earth, then we can live out the Sermon on the Mount, but not now. And I, I, I think that's heresy. That's my own personal conviction because the Sermon on the Mount is troubling. Uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are the merciful. Uh, you know what that does to our whole idea of capital punishment. And yet 
wherever Baptists are concentrated, like Texas, their uh, capital punishment is most evident. How do people who take Jesus seriously, uh, you know, believe in capital punishment uh, when, when Jesus makes it clear that we are not to return evil for evil? Uh, war becomes questionable. I mean, when Jesus said, love your enemies, he probably meant we shouldn't kill them. I mean, the, the Sermon on the Mount raises all kinds of questions. Certainly my students began asking me questions. Uh, Campolo, you're retiring now. Yeah, I am. What are you living on? Well, you know, I have my, I put money away, uh, IRAs, I have uh, some, some uh, endowments. Uh, they said, but Jesus said, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. Uh, how could you do that and be faithful? I said, wait a minute, you're, you're asking me to, and they said, yes, we are asking you, how seriously are you going to take the words of Jesus in, in, in the Bible? You know, we Baptists have these long arguments over whether or not the Bible is inerrant. I think a further question has to be raised. Are we going to take Jesus and the words of Scripture that articulate his beliefs seriously, taking Jesus seriously? Now, about uh, eight or nine years ago, Jim Wallace of Sojourners uh, and I uh, began to meet regularly. And we talked about the fact that the word evangelical had lost its meaning. Uh, I'm an old guy, so I remember when the word fundamentalist was a respectable name. But over the years, between about 1919 uh, and uh, up until uh, the uh, beginning of the 1950s, uh, calling yourself a fundamentalist was a very respectable thing to do. But fundamentalism began to accumulate a lot of negative baggage. Uh, uh, the word fundamentalist uh, came across as being judgmental, uh, fundamentalists were holier than thou over the rest of the population. Fundamentalists were, were people who were anti-scientific, uh, who were uh, perhaps uh, even uh, somewhat negative towards rational thinking. Uh, the, the pietism of fundamentalism began to weigh down those of us who had been calling ourselves fundamentalists. Uh, Carl Henry and Billy Graham about 1951, got together and said, let's not use the word fundamentalist to describe ourselves anymore. Let's call ourselves evangelicals. And so the word evangelical came into play and it served us well for many, many years. But over the last decade, that has become a problem for even as fundamentalism was a word that accumulated negative baggage, so the word fun uh, fundamentalism accumulated negative baggage, so the word evangelicalism accumulated uh, negative baggage. Barna, the researchers who study uh, religious trends, point out that the typical understanding of evangelical in today's world is anti-women, uh, anti-gay, uh, anti-environmentalist, uh, anti uh, pro-gun, uh, they go down the list of these things, anti-immigrant, uh, anti but these are the connotations 
that have somehow uh, gathered around the word evangelical. I think the media uh, has largely been responsible for creating these negative pictures of us. As of late, white evangelicalism has been identified with intense loyalty to Donald Trump. Uh, that may be an unfair judgment as well. Although we have to face the fact that 81% of white evangelicals did vote for Donald Trump. I can't say that the same kind of loyalty emerges among uh, Latino uh, Christians, Hispanic Christians, uh, uh, the same kind of loyalty to Trump emerges among African-American uh, Christians. But uh, white e evangelicals uh, had these uh, connotations. And uh, when I would go to speak at a place like Stanford or Yale or Harvard, uh, and I'd be introduced as an evangelical, the red flags would go up. The audience would immediately say, oh, we know who he is. He's somebody who wants women to be subservient. He's somebody who really uh, believes that gays can change their orientation and ought to be deprogrammed. He's somebody who is opposed to immigration. He is somebody who, who is uh, supportive of the uh, oppressive uh, foreign policies of America. I mean, whoa, I say, wait a minute, that's not who we are. Well, we don't believe those things. They say, well, that's what the word evangelical suggests to us. So we decided to come up with a new name. Let's start calling ourselves Red Letter Christians. We got that term because one time when Jim Wallace was being interviewed on a uh, secular Jewish uh, country and Western disc jockey in Nashville, Tennessee, he began referring to uh, Jim and Ron Sider, who also is taught here at Eastern, uh, having written Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, and Tony Campbell. You, you guys are into being uh, followers of the red letters of the Bible. You know, the words of Jesus that are highlighted with red letters in many of the old Bibles. You're one of those, you're one of those red letter Christians, aren't you, uh, Jim? And we, when we heard that, we said, you know, let's start calling ourselves red letter Christians because the word evangelical has lost its original power and meaning. And so we've been promoting that m movement. We have a website, www.redletterchristians.org, and thousands and thousands of young people around the country have aligned themselves as red letter Christians. Uh, we're starting the red letter Christians movement in the United Kingdom, because in the United Kingdom, the same uh, re reaction to the word evangelical has emerged. Evangelical, unjustifiably, let me use the word unjustifiably, has earned this pretty negative reputation. And so, uh, it, People who are evangelical in their theology don't want to be called evangelicals anymore in many instances because of the social connotations. The word evangelical has more and more assumed cultural and political meaning rather than theological soundness. If you're talking about theology, I'm an evangelical. I believe the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit. I believe that the men who wrote that book were imbued by the Holy Spirit and guided what they wrote. I believe that salvation comes through Jesus Christ, 
and his uh, salvation on the cross and his resurrection. I, I believe in the doctrines of the Apostles' Creed. If that's what you mean by evangelical, yes, I am evangelical. But when you add all those cultural and political connotations that the name has assumed, I say, wait a minute, I don't think I want to go by that name anymore. And so I and thousands and thousands of other people across this country and overseas as well. The Red Letter Christian Movement is growing in Germany. I, I just was with a whole group of Red Letter Christians in Frankfurt, Germany. So it's, it's a movement that's growing in which we're saying we're going to call ourselves Red Letter Christians. But with that comes the realization that while our theology has been sound, as Baptists, I think it is sound, our lifestyle has not been Christ-like. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. So for those of us that grew up in evangelical and, and don't want to touch that movement with a thousand foot pole. Um, I, I almost feel like I have to apologize for being an ordained Baptist minister because of what the term is associated with. So what, what do we do with this evangelical movement? How, how do we overcome the barriers this movement has put up between our culture's view of the church and its relevancy? Well, I don't think that red letter Christians is the only uh, movement that says we need a new way of defining ourselves. There are other attempts to say our theology is exactly what the evangelicals have said it is, but uh, our theology is evangelical, but our lifestyle does not fit into their definition of what an evangelical is. And so uh, there are other movements that are emerging. They're saying the same thing that the Red Letter Christians movement is saying. We think we're the most effective and the most widespread, but that may be challenged in the days that lie ahead. When it came to fundamentalism, there wasn't a day when evangelicals like Billy Graham stopped calling themselves fundamentalists and started calling themselves evangelicals. They simply left the old term fundamentalist behind. George Santayana said about such labels as evangelical, we do not reject them. We do not reject these labels. We simply bid them a fond farewell. And that's exactly the way I feel. Evangelical served me well for most of my life. It's only in the last 10 years that when I call myself an evangelical, I communicate a definition of self that isn't really valid. I think we will move into new ways of defining ourselves. Labels are temporary. The word of God stands forever. The essence of the gospel is 
everlasting. But labels for people, for groups, they pass away. I can't imagine the word Baptist ever fading away, but it'll happen. I have a feeling that in heaven, we will not be identified as Baptist. Well, I think by no longer using a name, we're, we're in a sense, we're separating ourselves from this old movement. Um, yet a part of me struggles at the same time that uh, we're in such a polarizing uh, culture. Uh, can we, and if so, how do we create healthy dialogue and partnerships with the polarities within Christianity? Well, you know, we have two messages from Scripture. In 2 Corinthians, we are told that we are called to a ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation. So when we see these struggling opposites, uh, these polarized groups, we have to say, this is something we should seek to overcome. We recognize that. But at the same time, uh, unity is not simply homogenization. We want harmony, not homogenization. We want to be harmonious with other Christians who differ with us, even with non-Christians who differ with us, who espouse biblical values, because many non-Christians espouse biblical values. I, I always am reminded of, of uh, uh, Mahatma Gandhi once saying, everybody knows what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, except for Christians. What an interesting line. But we know what he's talking about. And uh, uh, the reality is that, uh, that we don't want polarization. And yet, we have to remind ourselves that Jesus didn't say it would all be uh, holding hands and singing Kumbaya. Uh, consider this. He said to his disciples, think not that I have come to bring peace. I have come to bring a sword. I will set mothers against daughters, daughters against mothers, sons against fathers, fathers against sons. Do not think that I have come to bring peace. I have come to bring a sword. So there are ways in which we have to differentiate ourselves. And certainly in this secular culture, which is becoming increasingly pornographic. I think it is important for Christians to establish a differentiation between themselves and quote unquote worldliness. I remember when I was a kid, uh, worldliness was uh, rather uh, uh, strangely defined. Uh, you know, growing up Baptist, you probably had the same rituals. We don't smoke, we don't dance, uh, we don't chew, we don't date the girls who do, we don't go to movies. Uh, these were the marks of spirituality. Well, that day has passed. But let me just say, I'm worried about the culture. It has become uh, so sexualized. It has become so materialistic. It has become so militaristic. Uh, it has become so Americanized. I, I'm saying that Christians must say, being a citizen of the kingdom of God is not exactly the same thing as being a citizen of the United States of America. I love this country. I think it's the best Babylon on the face of the earth, but it is still Babylon. It is not the kingdom of God. And I seek first the kingdom of God. When I hear Christians say America first, I'm saying, wait a minute. It's the kingdom of God first. I'm going to be a patriot. 
which is different than being a nationalist. I am a patriot in that I love my country, but I am not a nationalist in which I put my nation's well-being and survival above all other values. Just recall driving down the interstate the other day and seeing the glorious bumper sticker. There's two things you can't pry from my dead hands, my gun and my Bible. Oh, that those two go together is amazing in light of a Jesus who said, those who live by the sword, or in this case, live by the gun, will die by the gun. Well, there's stories that you'll never hear. Um, you know, the formation of Red Letter Christians comes about the time um, that um, with a group of people in North Carolina, we started a new faith community that, um, you know, just to, to make sure we centered on um, the Jesus of the Gospels. We spent two and a half years going through the Gospel of Luke. Um, you know, we're 11 years removed from this movement's founding. Uh, where does Red Letter Christians stand? What, what has been your, your greatest success? Well, I don't know that we've been that successful. Uh, in terms of spreading the label, Red Letter Christians, it's been significant. I mean, uh, if you go to the website, redletterchristians.org, there's a place where you can sign up if you say, yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to accept this new label. I want to be faithful to the works of Jesus, which in so many of the old Bibles were highlighted in red. That's what I want to, I want people to identify myself that way. I want to be identified in that manner. That label is growing. In terms of the number of us who are actually living out the words of Jesus, really living out the words of Jesus, uh, I don't know how successful we are. Uh, when people ask me, are you a Christian? I remember the words of the Danish philosopher theologian, Søren Kierkegaard. He said, if you mean by Christian what Jesus expected his followers to be, who then is Christian? In any given generation, there might be three or four. Wow, what a line. Uh, when people ask me, are you a Christian? I answer like this. Are you asking me, am I saved? Am I delivered from the consequences of my sin? My answer is yes. That's what Jesus has done for me and continues to do for me. That's what Jesus has done and is doing. But if you mean by Christian, somebody who is living out without variation, the teachings of Jesus, I say, I'm on my way. I'm not there yet. I'm becoming more Christian every day, I hope. Every day, I hope to become more Christian than I was the day before. But whenever I sign one of my books, I always sign beneath my name the verses, Philippians 3, 13, and 14. Not as though I have already achieved, not as though I have already apprehended, but forgetting those things which are behind. I'm pressing towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's where I am. I haven't reached the mark yet. I'm pressing in that direction. I'm so grateful to God that my salvation is dependent on God's grace through Christ rather than my own 
achieving of the lifestyle that Jesus prescribed. I'm pressing in that direction. I'm not what I was, but I'm not what I ought to be. I chuckle every time I hear your name because uh, the first time I heard your name was in 1992 when my um, youth minister did a series based on your book, Everything You Heard Is Wrong. And he titled the series, Everything Tony Campolo Says Is Wrong. Um, and just even, <laughs> even Googling your name brings up some of the most vile defamations of your character and work. And according to several thousand angry bloggers, your soul is destined for hot places. But many, many of our listeners are, are clergy doing the good work each day of bringing transformation to this world. And they're facing the ramifications of their so-called radical teachings of the gospel. So I wonder if you might speak to how you deal with this negative noise that persistently comes with your work and words and movement. There was a time when I tried to respond to my critics, but the critics became so numerous that it became impossible. When people write and say, I deserve hell, they're right. When they say, I can hardly call myself a faithful follower of Jesus, they're right. But I want to remind them that my salvation is not in terms of what I have taught and what I have done. My salvation is contingent on what Jesus did for me on Calvary's cross, what Jesus continues to do through me and in me through the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm saved by grace. Grace is unmerited favor. I didn't earn my salvation. I didn't earn the glory that God has provided for me. It's a gift. It's a gift. And uh, I have to remind my critics, if you're talking about uh, deserving hell, you got the guy. If you're talking about somebody who's worthy of condemnation, you, you got the guy. But I have to remind them that in Romans, uh, the eighth chapter, the first verse, it says, but there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So I always have to remind myself who I am, given who Jesus says I am. My definition comes in relationship with him. He is, quote unquote, the significant other in my life. And if he infirms me as his loving child, what do I care about my critics? Uh, my my scripture says, uh, and Jesus said it, beware when all men speak well of you. Well, all men do not speak well of me. And if, uh, if everybody's speaking well of you, you ought to stop and ask, am I really following Jesus at all? Uh, I'm just trying to be faithful to Jesus. I'm just trying to be faithful to the Lord. This has gotten me in a great deal of trouble. Perhaps the place where I get into the most trouble is on the issue of uh, homosexuals. I tend to believe that God loves them, and I'm ready to receive them and love them as brothers and sisters. And the fact that, uh, that I am uh, condemned on the basis that, uh, that I love these brothers, that I love these sisters, uh, is, is a source of sadness to me, because I know that if Jesus in the flesh was among us, he would embrace those that the religious establishment rejects. I, uh, I say this, uh, it's a line I got from one of my students who said, whenever you draw a line and put certain people on the other side of that line, 
you can be sure that Jesus is on the other side of the line with them. That impacts me. And I choose to stand with those who are on the other side of the line. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, I am the man for others. And I know of what he speaks. Um, how do I handle the condemnations? To say that they don't affect me is to lie. I weep. I get people who uh, invite me to speak in their churches. And then some person in the congregation says, have you read some of the things they have said about him uh, on the internet? And I get a call and saying, I'd like to have you come, but there are a handful of people in my church who are desperately opposed to you coming and say they will leave the church if you have come. And I ask a very simple question of those who critique me. Have you ever heard me preach a sermon, even on social justice, where I don't talk about Jesus and his salvation and his way of leading us to heaven by his grace? Have you ever heard me preach where I do not hold Jesus up? And if I hold Jesus up, at least give me credit for that, even if you disagree with me on social issues. As if uh, all of your writing and speaking and mentoring and developing poignant organizations wasn't enough, you've been working on an, a new venture, the Campolo Center for Ministry. Tell us about the center. Well, uh, I'm an old guy now. And as I look back on young men and women who I thought were going to become pastors and missionaries, I realize that more than 50% of them who go all the way through college, all the way through seminary, end up not going into the pastoral ministry, not becoming evangelists or Christian education directors, not going overseas to serve those in other countries with the gospel of Jesus Christ, but end up just dropping out of that whole church vocational system. And when I ask why, I find that money is a primary reason. Let me point out to you what Forbes magazine has made clear that the typical seminary graduate graduates $70,000 in debt. Let me repeat that, $70,000 in debt. Now consider the fact that more than 80% of the churches in America have less than 100 people in their congregations on Sunday morning. Can a person graduating from seminary, $70,000 in debt, afford to go to a church that can only pay him or her uh, $35,000 or $40,000 a year. I mean, you got this debt you got to pay off. The cost of living is high. If you're married and have children, you, you can't make it on that amount of money. And so, in fact, uh, you... Uh, you end up saying, I know what I'll do. I'll take off a few years, earn enough money uh, to pay off my debts, and then I will get into ministry. If you take that route, very seldom do you end up in church vocations. I'm not suggesting that there isn't ministry outside church vocations. Very much so. The early church grew by people who were not into church vocations, but who were into uh, um, typical uh, vocations of society, uh, 
Paul himself, in addition to being the greatest uh, evangelist of the early church, was simultaneously a tent maker. So uh, please let me not put down the ability to communicate Christ in worldly, quote unquote, vocations. But there is something special about church vocations. And my life has been committed to getting the brightest and the best into those vocations. So I started this Campolo Center for Ministry. And we're raising money, a lot of money, in order to set up an endowment and to even now provide financial support for young men and young women who are going into the pastoral ministry, who are going into the mission field, who want to be in church vocations. And so we raise money and uh, we, uh, we help them to pay off their bills. As a matter of fact, if they're uh, accepted into the program of the Campolo Center for Ministry, we promise the young person, when you graduate, you will be graduated debt-free. We will work with you and your home church and your friends and your relatives, and in addition to the money that we will supply, we will get you out of seminary debt-free so that you can go into the pastor uh, pastorate that doesn't pay you much. You can go to the mission field where you're not going to be able to uh, earn much money. And, and perhaps in the case of American Baptists, you're going to have to go out and raise your own support. You can do that because you won't have this debt hanging over your head. We emphasize coming to Eastern because every young person, we have 10 of them in the program right now, who are both seminary and university grad, uh, students, uh, we, we nurture them. We meet with them once a week for prayer and Bible study. We meet with them once a week to ask how they're developing spiritually. Uh, we meet with them uh, for an hour every week to make sure they're staying on track. Because in my years at Eastern, I saw so many young people come into the university committed to full-time vocational church ministries and then somewhere along the line they lose the vision they lose their dynamism uh, very often they even lose their faith uh, higher education can be a wonderful blessing but we all know many young people who in the process of pursuing uh, university degrees and graduate degrees drift away from christ so we want to guide the young people uh, Every week, we check on them, we nurture them, we guide them, we mentor them. So uh, being part of the Red Letter Christian program is one thing. Being part of the Campolo Center for Ministry is to be committed to a church vocation. Your people can go and check out the Campolo Center for Ministry by going to the website. We have a website for that as well. It spells out the details. But uh, we're enthusiastic about that. We make Eastern the place where they should go because we want to watch over and supervise the young people who we are funding. I hope that every uh, Christian college, every Christian university sets up a program like the one that we have. I, uh, I was really uh, negative towards calling it the Campolo Center for Ministry because I'm always worried about programs and schools uh, where people attach their names to them. Uh, but the reason why we did 
was because when we ended the work of the Evangelical Association for the Promotion of Education, EAPE, which you referred to earlier, uh, we had been in business for 40 years, raising money to uh, launch young people who wanted to start new missionary uh, adventures. Over the years, we have either launched or funded, uh, in one way or another, 22 ministries that wouldn't exist had we not become active in financially undergirding the work. We say to young people in the EAPE, uh, Evangelical Association for the Promotion of Education, you got a vision. Let's talk about it. Let's help you turn that vision into reality. And we have done it. And, uh, and then five years ago, we decided, where do we go from here? We closed down EAPE, took the money that we have, distributed among the ministries that we had initiated and had nurtured, and said, we still have a mailing list. What do we do with that? And with that mailing list, we said, we're not just going to tell these people to forget it. We're going to ask them to support this new venture of launching young people into church vocations. Um, all over America, there are people who are sending us monthly gifts in order to undergird young people who are going into full-time church vocations. So uh, that's how the thing got started. Uh, that's why it exists. I hope that every Christian college and seminary does the same thing, works out a program. Now, some of your seminaries in the South have so much money, like Southern has money coming out of its ears, and uh, people graduating from that school uh, will often find that they're debt-free because the, uh, the seminary has given them a free ride. But in many cases, even those graduates have problems because they have debts uh, lingering over their heads from their college days, their university days. So uh, this is a needed thing to financially undergird people. We have a method too uh, that goes with that. We think that uh, the way young people are called into the ministry is not the way that the Bible prescribes. In the book of Acts, we read that the church set aside Paul and Barnabas, that the church set aside Silas, that the church set aside Matthias as a disciple. It was the church that did the calling. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm uh, sitting here in my office looking at my uh, uh, ordination certificate that says the New Berean Baptist Church has called into the ministry. Well, the New Berean Baptist Church didn't call me. I simply told the pastor of the church, I was, I was at this youth retreat and I felt called to the ministry. Now, I'm not knocking that. But the Bible says that the church does the calling. And so what I do is I, when I speak in a church, I often want to meet with the deacons and say, I want to lay on you a responsibility. I think you ought to meet every Sunday morning for six months and pray about the young people in your church who ought to become preachers and missionaries, Christian head directors, who ought to be going into church vocations. Pray about them. And then try to discern under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, those who have the gifts. Note, the Bible is very clear that there are gifts of preaching. 
Some are given the gift of preaching, some the gift of teaching, uh, some the gift of prophecy. It's in the scriptures. Read uh, Corinthians, uh, read uh, 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 Philippians and Ephesians. These are gifts. There are too many people who are godly people and are in the pulpits, but they're not gifted as preachers. We need to ferret out the gifted people and then undergird them with financial support, with prayer, with nurture, with guidance. And so I say to the deacons of a given church, are you willing to carefully consider the young people in your church and pray about who should be in church vocations? Then take that young man or that young woman out to breakfast one Saturday morning. Maybe two or three of you sit down at breakfast and say, John or Mary, whatever the person is, we've been praying about you. I don't know whether you're aware that the deacons have been meeting regularly, praying about those who should go into church vocation. And as of late, we've been praying especially about you. And we are convinced that you should be in a church vocation. If you do this, we will work along with groups like the Campolo Center for Ministry to see that you graduate debt-free. We will nurture you all the way through school. We will support you in every way possible. We will do this. Now, let me say this to you uh, as you address that young person. You can say no to this invitation to go into church ministry. But here's something you will never be able to say again. You will never be able to say, I never was called to be a preacher. I was never called to be a missionary. We are extending the call to you now. And we're doing it on biblical grounds that the church is the instrument through which God calls people into ministry. You know, I've got one bone to pick with you. What's that? You keep saying you're an old guy and you're retiring, but you still have a lot of very important hats that you need to keep wearing. Yep. I still teach a course here at Eastern whenever they give me the opportunity, and I ask for the opportunity often. I'm still on the preaching circuit. Before I became so empathetic towards gay and lesbian and transgendered and bisexual people, before I began to feel their pain and begin to call the, pain, the church to love these brothers and sisters instead of just outright driving them away, I was speaking somewhere around 300 times a year. And that's 300 different locations. That's wild. When I look back, that's wild. And that was true up until about four years ago. And that's when I uh, became very vocal in saying the time has come to accept LGBT people into the life of the church. And uh, when I said that, and they all said, well, you don't get me wrong, Campolo. We're quite willing that these people come into the church to worship, but we don't want them to become members. Come on, I say to them. We know that membership is a crock. Uh, uh, Two-thirds of the people who are on the membership roles of churches seldom, if ever, show up, <laughs> and yet they're members. And here's a gay couple that shows up every Sunday, but they can't become members. Membership doesn't have the meaning it once had and perhaps should have. But the reality is, I say these people should become part of the church. 
uh, it's in the context of the church that people find the strength to overcome their sexual weaknesses. Uh, it's in the context that uh, the church that heterosexuals overcome the temptation to adultery and fornication. It's in the context of the church that people overcome their shortcomings. The church ought to be the place where there's healing and help and hope. And when I began to be very empathetic towards gay and lesbian people, I got massive cancellations. So now I think I'll speak at about 50 different locations in the course of a year. And, uh, and I, you know, the truth is I'm open to more invitations. So put the word out there. Campolo wants to speak more. <laughs> so write to him at Eastern University and he'll, he'll say yes, if at all possible. So I, I, I really enjoy speaking and I, I'm out at least once a week, and uh, I, I I find that that's good for me because that's my gift. And pressing the age of 84, I got to tell you, I don't know uh, what other people think, but I know they say to me, you speak with as much energy, conviction, forcefulness, and clarity as you ever did, perhaps more so now that you're more experienced. So, yeah, I'm speaking a lot. And I still write a lot. I write on the blog of redletterchristians.org. I'm, I'm out there uh, communicating as best I can because, uh, as the apostles once said uh, when they were on trial, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. What I have seen and heard about Jesus is something I've got to talk about and write about. You are always welcome on this program. Uh, Tony, thank you for your work because it stands for itself, for your wisdom and courage that have impacted millions. And thank you for your willingness to live out your convictions to follow Jesus of Nazareth. Well, thank you very much. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors' websites, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.